Good morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here, and I'm glad that whoever's watching on the live stream is watching. If you could take a second, and you could, if you could take a second and fill out the guest registers at the end of the whatever row you're sitting in, and then pass those to the people next to you so that they could fill those out as well. Uh, I would appreciate it. Uh, schedule for this week is uh, normal, I believe. Today we have a few extra things. One is youth, confir- youth confirmation class, which is beginning this week. So um, right after Sunday school, so 11.45-ish, uh, kids uh, meet with me downstairs. We have a handful of kids who are going to be there already. If you haven't told me that you're going to be there yet, I think I've talked to, I tried to talk to mo- most of you. Uh, but if you want to be there, that's uh, totally fine. 11.45 to uh, 12.45 parents, come back and pick up your kids. We'll talk after, after Sunday school. Also, new members class this evening at uh, 6.30. What did I say? No, 6 o'clock. 6 to 7.30. That's actually, I, I'm in pursuit of a new name for that. And this has been going on for like three years. And I've asked all the previous classes to help me think of a new name for this class. And uh, they've all been hugely unsuccessful. New members class is kind of a lame name uh, because not everybody who's in there is, uh, I mean, a lot of people who are, are already members who are in there and some people who are hanging out who aren't going to become members. And I've got a few suggestions, but I'm looking for something really trendy and cool that says Aaron Miller is relevant and hip. And uh, so if you can help me out with that, obviously I'm not relevant and hip enough to think of a name for myself. But if I can borrow somebody else's relevance and hipness, then I would appreciate that. But that's actually, it's a, that, that, if, that is actually a good time. It's, we're there for an hour and a half. Uh, kids are welcome. So, uh, there's uh, child care provided. And uh, we'll hang out and we'll talk about the story of the Bible and uh, eat donuts. So please, anybody who wants to uh, come to that is more than welcome. And that's this evening. Uh, two more things, and then we'll jump into worship. One is that... Um, March 10th and 11th, we are going to do a joint uh, marriage retreat with Good Shepherd in Collinsville, and uh, space is limited for that, but it's, uh, it's an overnight thing, and we're going to get together. I'm not leading it. Um, uh, somebody from Good Shepherd is. I think Aaron Cobra is. Is that right? So if you know Aaron and Carrie, uh, they're going to lead it. It's going to be at the, uh, what's the name of that place, Cheryl? Sorry. The Four Point Sheraton in Fairview Heights uh, by the Chinese restaurant there, a uh, Japanese restaurant. Uh, so if you, have, if you would like to participate in that, it's going to be a good time. Uh, talk to Cheryl, and she can get you the information. That's March 10th through 11th. Uh, coming up in the next few weeks, I'll have her, Tim, come up and give us actual uh, more information about that. And then last thing is, uh, like I told you last week, we're going to be taking up um, a door offering at the end of the service today for Jack Blair who is leading a mission trip to Hungary. This is one of our college students this summer. And Happy, also one of our college students, leading a mission trip to Costa Rica. And so we'll just split the uh, door offering between the two of them. So on your way out, there'll be an usher with an offering plate uh, at the exit and that you can, you can get, uh, donate to them and then we'll support them. Okay, uh, I think that's all I have by way of notices. Let's go ahead and stand and open with the first hymn.
Continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm for this morning is Psalm 41 through 11. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated.
Old Testament reading, Isaiah 49. This is another one of the servant songs from Isaiah 40 to 55 that we looked at last week. And again, you'll, you'll notice here a similar theme in that it's, it, God's not just content to rescue Israel, but God wants to rescue the whole world. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, epistle reading, Revelation 3. This is, remember Revelation 2, we looked at the first four letters last week that John wrote to the churches. This is the second three letters that he writes to the churches. Uh, the, uh, the second set of letters, these three he writes to the churches, um, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God 
and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the church, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John chapter 1. Glory to you, O Lord. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. 
he suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please stay standing for the sermon hymn. Strength in it. 
you turn to Revelation 3, or look at it in your bulletin, and we'll look at what the Spirit says to the last three churches out of these seven. You'll notice when we go through Revelation that um, uh, for, for whatever reason, seven is a big number for uh, John. He does things in cycles of seven. There's seven churches. There's going to be seven signs. There's going to be seven trumpets. There's going to be seven bowls. We'll talk later on when we get into the, uh, the very apocalyptic section about why he's using that number and what it's not anything mystical or, or, or magical, but he's uh, uh, creating patterns for us to notice uh, to help frame our thoughts about Revelation around. And it's very, very, when you get there, you'll see it's kind of helpful. Meanwhile, back here, these three churches are very similar to the four churches that um, we looked at last week. And so I'm not going to do, this is going to be kind of, the sermon is going to be a little bit of a rehash of the sermon from last week, um, where the churches are weak and uh, sinful and broken, but also um, uh, glorious and powerful and beautiful. More on that next week. But I'm going I'm to uh, go through these churches a little bit, not, uh, not linearly, but uh, I'm going to point out a few things, make three points, and then I'm going to give you a bonus point at the end of the sermon because uh, you guys have earned it. So a bonus point because I'm just, uh, maybe I'm just feeling in a good mood. Actually, when I say bonus point, it means that it's a point that doesn't actually fit in with the rest of the sermon, but it's something that I want to say anyway. That's what bonus point means. All right, so uh, Revelation 3, you've got these three churches uh, they're weak and they're broken and they're sinful and very similar to what we looked at last week. Uh, some of the things that mark these churches is um, they've started well at their beginning, but then they've given up or they've gotten into a rut and gotten apathetic and lazy. Look at verse one. Uh, I know, into verse one, I know your works, he says to the church at Sardis, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So you have this reputation for being alive, but somehow over time you've died. You're still maintaining the vibe. You've got this vibe of a church that maybe has got it going on and there's life there, but really you've died. You've caved into the culture, we'll see, as we, as if, you, if we would look down to the rest of the description of Sardis. Uh, soiled garments is probably in verse four, John's way of saying, you've accommodated to the culture. You've assimilated, and now your church is not so much the church proclaiming and living in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but a church which now reflects not the nature and the character of God, but the nature and character of the culture that you live in. Still a church. God still loves you. He's going to rescue you. He's going to save you, but you definitely need to wake up, he says in verse 3. Also, uh, weakness is just a general theme through all of these, is that you're small and you're tiny, and everybody's kind of against you. Look at verse 8. This is to the church at Philadelphia. He says, uh, I know your works. I've set before you an open door. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. You're weak. You're, but by cultural standards, you're weak. So, you know, you're not really accomplishing a lot. You're not making a big impact on the culture. This is, this is typically the way the Christian church looks when you just look at the surface at, uh, of it. What good does the Christian church do? They're little, and all they have, all the Church of Philadelphia has, is their faith and their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've been kicked out of the synagogue, and this is, again, we talked about this stuff last week in verse 9. This is similar to language that was used in, in verse 2, is that you've been kicked out of the synagogue. The religious authorities themselves have rejected you. Also, um, yeah, I mean, so this just in general, struggling with sin is a big one, of course, and all of these, a lot of times it's a different kind of sin. For some of them, it's sexual sin. You've taken on the sexual mores of their culture. 
uh, you know, uh, Christians especially, uh, um, I'm not just Christians, but uh, conservative people in general tend to look at the culture and be like, oh man, it's out of control in America. Our our, our sexual mores are bad. Uh, They're not anywhere near as bad as in the Greco-Roman world. The church has always been tempted to accommodate to the sexual mores of their culture. And God always has to call us back to sexual purity and faithfulness to him. That's just a part of it. Um, Sacrificing to idols is one that we see throughout here. This is just something that that we as human beings, we always grapple with, believing that there's some other God besides the one true God that can satisfy us or fulfill us, make us happy. That's a temptation we all grapple with all the time. And us, St. James Lutheran Church, like the seven churches, constantly be having to be called back. So um, finally, let me just do this last one and then we'll get on to uh, the good stuff here. Uh, apathy is a big one. This, we kind of looked at this in verse, uh, you know, that you have the reputation of being alive but you're dead. But one really big one, uh, one uh, famous section in here that highlights the apathy of the church is the, 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 what he says to the church of Laodicea in verse um, 15. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So uh, lukewarm has actually become sort of a, a, a kind of a, a code name for apathetic. Lukewarm, and that comes from this text. That's kind of a language that we get from this text. Um, when, when I was a kid, and some of you grew up in a church like this, uh, I, I know that for those of you who uh, grew up, uh, I grew up Baptist, a lot of you grew up in churches like this. This text, when it would be preached upon, it would be said, uh, you know, you're neither cold nor hot. Cold is like a synonym for unsaved, spiritually dead. Hot is a synonym for being on fire for God. And I, I wish that, you know, you're neither cold nor hot. You're not on fire for God, but you're not unsaved either. I wish that you were either on fire for God or unsaved. Uh, that's actually not what it's saying at all. There's no way or in Scripture that God would ever say, I wish that you were unsaved. Actually, um, I'm going to give you a little taste of this now. Uh, come downstairs to adult Bible study afterwards, and we'll talk about this more. The letter to Laodicea here is very, very much informed by the city of Laodicea itself. And there's a lot that went on in that ancient city that John knows about because he's from around there and is making reference to. One thing is this, is that uh, Laodicea, Laodicea uh, did not have a great water supply. It sits on the river Lycus, which is not a big river, not big enough to support a city. Laodicea was a very, very big city. It was the, uh, the economic center of its area. Uh, uh, yeah, and um, Lycus isn't big enough to support it. And so it, it would have to get its uh, water, like many Roman cities did, through viaducts. And it had two main water sources, which were completely different. One source was the city of Colossae, which you guys know um, from the letter to Colossians that Paul writes. Colossae and Laodicea were close to each other and kind of related to each other. In fact, when Paul, um, in in the letter to Colossians, you go go back and look at this later, Paul says, hey, I'm sending this letter to you. I'm also sending a letter to the church of Laodicea, which we don't have anymore. We don't have a copy of that anymore. When Laodicea gets done with theirs, they're going to send theirs to you. And when you get done with the letter, with your letter, send, send yours to Laodicea. So they're really close to each other. Laodice- uh, Colossae did have a great water source, Mount Cadmus, which was very high. It's one of the highest mountains in Turkey and an extremely cold water source. And it's up in the mountains 
And so the, the aqueduct would bring the water straight down to Laodicea, very, very cold water. They had another water source, which was in a different direction, the city of Heropolis, which then, as now, has hot springs. And uh, back in the Roman world, uh, Turkish citizens today, it's a tourism site because it has hot springs uh, that are famous for, you know, whatever, they, why ever people go to hot springs, I don't know. But that would, they had an aqueduct which would pump hot water into uh, Laodicea from the other direction. So Laodicea had a source of very, very cold water and a source of very, very hot water, which is good. That's actually super convenient. You and I, uh, uh, most of you in here have uh, running hot and cold water in your house. You forget like how convenient it is to have really cold water. It's good for drinking, right? You, we forget how convenient it is to have hot water on hand. It's good for cleaning and it's good for cooking. But if you have water that's not either one, it's not good for anything. And that's all that John is saying here is, is that unlike the water source in your city, you basically are good for nothing. You're not cold, so you can't be, you, you can't be a, a refreshing drink on a hot day. You're not hot, so you're not good for cooking or for cleaning. You're basically just lukewarm. Nobody wants you. You're not iced tea, but you're not coffee either. And so you're going to get spit out because you're just basically bland. You're apathetic. And so he's judging them for that. Honestly, like I said last week, uh, and somebody said this in adult Bible study, where would, like, if, if John was writing a letter to St. James, what would he say? And it would be really, really uh, attempting to say, oh, he would just say, like, nonstop good stuff. Like, he'd be like, St. James, I've got nothing to say to you except just keep being you. Why don't you guys like write a book about how to be such a great church and then pass it out to the other churches? But honestly, he would say a bunch of the stuff that he says here. He would criticize us for our sexual immorality. He would criticize us for our idolatry. He would criticize us for our apathy. Hopefully he would also say, I know your commitment to truth. I, I know your faithfulness. But there would definitely be a lot to criticize. And this is the way the Christian church is. It's broken and it's sinful and it's sad, but th this is transition point right here in the sermon. One of the questions that we have is, when you read the book of Revelation, for those of you who have, you know that starting next week, starting in chapter four, it's gonna start getting crazy. Like crazy visions of big things. And especially four and five, which we're gonna read next week, is this vision of all these, this massive amount of people gathered around the throne of the Lamb worshiping him. One of the questions we have is like, there's all these great visions, or great, however you want to, I mean big, some of them are weird, some of them are scary. There's all these visions. Why do you have this bit here at the front where it's like these letters to these seven lame-o churches? Like, what's the point? Why would you write these letters to the seven churches and then all of a sudden jump to these great cosmic visions? And the answer is, I'm, and I said this last week, I'm, I know I'm repeating myself, super important, that the church, churches, however you want to say it, in chapters two and three, is the exact same church in chapter four and five. The lame church that you see sitting around you now is the same church, bold, beautiful, completely victorious, gathered around the throne of Jesus now in heaven. Exact same thing going on. And what apocalyptic does, what the book of Revelation does, is it opens our eyes to see this two-sided reality. It's a two-sided reality. Now, um, I hinted around at this quote last week, and I thought, I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna go find it in the screw tape letters and read it to you, because it's so good. So this is from C.S. Lewis's The Screw Tape Letters, and he's not talking about Revelation, but he's talking about the two-sided reality of the church. If you look at us, if you look at St. James from one direction, 
you just see kind of lameness. We're all kind of broken people with our fears and our shame and our weaknesses, our besetting sins. But if you look at St. James from the other side, what you see is the army of God victorious, ruling over the whole world. Which one is the real side? Well, they're both there. They're both real. It's not that one is fake and one is real. They're both there. And part of being a Christian is to live in that reality. Part of, this is C.S. Lewis's point, part of that is to not get discouraged by looking around at the lameness. Don't read the letter to the seven churches and be like, why the heck even try? Like, I can't stop sinning. I can't be strong. What are we even doing here? But to be faithful because actually, if you could just see behind the curtain, if Elijah could pray for you and open our eyes and we could see the army of God surrounding the army of this world, we would all be more bold. That's what Lewis says. Now, I, I gotta set this up because uh, a bunch of us read through screw tape letters uh, about a year ago, and it's really difficult, and I'll tell you why. Because it's not a Christian talking in the screw tape letters. It's Lewis, but he's talking like he's a demon. And he's a demon named Screwtape, who is a senior demon in the demon bureaucracy, and he's training a younger demon, actually his nephew, Wormwood. This is not a true story, by the way. He's training this younger demon, Wormwood, how to tempt Christians, specifically this one young man who he calls the patient that Wormwood has been assigned to. And Wormwood's job is to make sure this guy gets into hell. And they have a long conversation. It's very imaginative, of course, because it's C.S. Lewis. But one of the things he says is this. He's telling the, telling the young demon, he says, one of the great allies at present in our cause of like damning this young guy, one of the great allies at present is the church itself. The church is actually working on our side if we let it to damn these people. So don't, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. What he's talking about is the Revelation 4 and 5 next week, the glorious church gathered around the throne of Jesus. I'm not talking about that. That actually scares us to death, the demons say. That church is powerful and scary. What I'm talking about instead is, is that I confess is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished, sham Gothic architecture on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands. Think uh, somebody handing out the bulletin to you at the beginning. And one shabby little book containing corrupt text of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. He's talking about the hymn book. Lewis, by the way, Lewis did not like Christian hymns. He thought most of them were just lousy. Uh, Fourth-rate poetry set to fifth-rate music, he said one time. When, he gets to, when, when this guy gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. You see what he's saying? Revelation four through five is powerful. It motivates, it motivates even the weakest Christian and scares even the most powerful demon. You gotta make them think about Revelation two and three, the little, tiny, lousy, sinful church. Make, make his mind flip to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know, you, he's talking to a demon, you may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, 
provide that any, provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Now, I'm not gonna, it's kind of a long reading, I'm not gonna go on, but later on he talks about how it's even more easy if they know that the person sitting next to them is like got this bad sin that they're struggling with. That makes it even more easy for them to say, this is stupid. We're coming here and saying, arise, O church, arise. And you look around and we're all kind of dumpy and dowdy and weak and sinful. Well, what Revelation does is says, flip the coin. Look at who you really are in Jesus Christ. And we're gonna get hot and heavy into that in Revelation four and five, but we get a little taste of it here in Revelations two and three. Let me point out three ways that we, you and I, should live in this double-sided reality. First way is this, belief in Jesus. Now, this isn't about us doing something. This is not about you mustering up faith in Jesus. This is about you looking at Revelation three for the next few minutes and seeing what Jesus has already done and who he is for you and just learning to live in it, learning to live in the reality of who Jesus is for you. Four things here, I'll do, I'm gonna work, this is gonna be quick. Verse 19, he loves us. So he's busting up on the church of Laodicea. He is pretty hard on Laodicea. You guys are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. But here's what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See what he's saying? Hey, this is the way I talk to my friends. This is what he says in verse nine. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, but that's because I love you. I'm warning you because I love you. Jesus loves us, and so he warns us to repent. Look, if you could pull out, I could give you five minutes of my time, and you could just see it. You don't know me, decontextualize. You could see me interact with my kids, and you could see me interact with the stocky kids. And those three things. And if I could give you five minutes of my time, you would say, Aaron likes the stocky kids more than his own kids. He's polite to them, he tries to make conversation, he's nice, but to his own kids, he's like, come on, you gotta get ready, school starts in 15 minutes, we gotta go. Hey, you gotta be nice, you gotta be nice to your brother and sister. I'm constantly coming on to these people. And if you just looked at my relationship, you would just assume that like, I like the Sockies more than I like my kids. Now, uh, if you saw Dan and Stacy interacting with my kids and their kids, you might assume the opposite. They're hard. Now, why is that? Why are Dan and Stacy harder on their kids and Angela and I are harder on our kids? It actually is because we love them. Jesus is hard on us in, in chapters two and three because he loves us. Don't imagine this sort of false dichotomy between love and anger. Love and anger are also flip sides of the same coin. Love is what you, anger is what you experience when something that you love is damaged, right? Anger is what you experience when someone you love damages themselves. It's a, it, if you're not angry when someone you love is damaged, then you don't really love them. Jesus is saying, church, you've got to repent precisely because he loves us. Not because he's wrathful, but actually because he loves us. First of all, Jesus loves us. Second of all, this he justifies us. Look back at verse four and five. It's one of the things he says to the church at Sardis is yet you have a still a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. What's the deal with the white garments? It's a reference to a really fantastic chapter in the book of Zechariah. We talked about this in uh, Sunday, uh, Bible study last week, and my community group talked about this a little bit too. Zechariah is an important Old Testament book for understanding the book of Revelation. More on that later. Zechariah 3 tells this story, though, of Zechariah. He has this vision. 
and he sees his good friend Joshua. Now, Zechariah is a political leader and a prophet. Joshua is, um, Joshua is the high priest at Jerusalem. This is not Joshua from the book of Joshua. This is a different Joshua. It's a very common Hebrew name. It's a different Joshua later on. But Zechariah has this vision, and he sees Joshua in this vision. Let me read a few verses here. Then God showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So he has this vision, and he sees his buddy Joshua standing before God, and he's on trial. He's standing before the judge of the Lord, and then Satan, the prosecuting attorney, is standing there getting ready to accuse him and to say to God, he's not worthy, he needs to be punished. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who's chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with white garments. All right, this is you guys. For those of you who are in Christ, those of you who've been baptized into Jesus, I know that you know that your clothes are filthy and they're dirty. And when you look in the mirror, there's 116 different things that you know are wrong with you. But before the throne of God himself, you are dressed completely in white. Not because those dirty clothes are fake, they aren't, but because Jesus has chosen to clothe you with his own white garments, the garments that he has washed in his own blood from the cross. That is who you are. You are completely perfect in God's eyes. And there's nothing that can change that. When he looks at you, he sees absolute perfection. That's the Revelation 4, five, four through 5 side of the coin. I am not saying you can ignore the Revelation 2 through 3 side of the coin. We're supposed to repent. But the reason why we're supposed to repent is because there's space to repent because the forgiveness is so ample. He is not saying repent to earn forgiveness. He's saying repent because you can repent because I have forgiven you. He freely welcomes you and is dying to forgive you, literally dying to forgive you. And he's done that. You are completely perfect. You are justified. Third thing, he makes us his new temple. Look at verse 12. He says this to the church at Philadelphia. Um, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. The temple of God is super important. Several reasons. One is that it's the only place where sins can be forgiven the only place where God will forgive sins. Whether you're talking about Exodus 40 or you're talking about Revelation 21, the temple of God is the only place where he will forgive sins. It's the only place where the perfect sacrifice can be made. You are the temple of God. God has turned you into his own temple. He's done that by becoming, Jesus is the temple of God and he has united you to himself in such a way that now you guys are God's temple. He is the place, you guys are the place where God lives. You guys are the only place where forgiveness of sins can happen. It can only happen with you. But uh, in Revelation, the temple is also the place, and this is all connected, by the way. This is not a separate point. The temple is the place where God's reality and your reality overlap. There's, think of a Venn diagram. I said this last week. Think of a Venn diagram. On one side of the Venn diagram is your life, your everyday life. You get up, you put your pants on, you make yourself breakfast, you get in the car, you drive wherever it is you're driving that day, you struggle with your sins, you tell lies, you feel sick, you gotta stop and get some Dayquil. That's your life, that's the one Venn diagram. The other Venn diagram is God's realm, the place where God rules over all things. 
where he is king of kings and lord of lords. There is an overlap between those two realms. And the name of that overlap is the Christian church. That is the temple of God. The temple of God is where God lived on earth. Jesus is the temple of God where God dwells on earth. And now you guys live in the overlap. By the way, uh, no, I'm gonna, I'll make that point later. I'll, uh, uh, sit on that. I'll come back to that later in, in the next point, actually. Uh, point four here. God gives himself to us. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I stand at the door and knock. I know this sounds like, again, I'm pulling up all my independent fundamental Baptist uh, uh, illustrations from when I was a kid. This was always like, Aaron, God is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking and you need to listen to him and let him in. And the whole vibe was, Aaron, you have a personal choice right now. God is calling you. You need to let him into your life. But actually, if you go back to the way the, 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 the uh, standing at the door and knocking language is used in the Bible, I'll give you one example real quick. Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, stay, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them food. Luke 12, 35 through 37. What's happening there? Is God knocking at Aaron, the door of Aaron Miller's heart? No, God's actually knocking at his own door. It belongs to him. I'm just, I'm just inside. And it's my job just to say, God, this place is yours. Welcome back in. This is yours. It's not mine. It's not my individual sovereignty that I'm letting God have control of. No, the whole thing, the whole shebang belongs to him. But let's not miss this last point here in Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse 20, which is, uh, which, Luke 12, too, what Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Almost every common, c commentator I looked at the past couple weeks says this is clearly a reference to Holy Communion. Why does this fit in with the temple language? Because if what we're doing right here is an overlap between our normal, ordinary, mundane lives and the life of God, if the church is the place where God's world and our world intersect, then Christian worship is not about you guys hearing a nice lecture about God and then coming up and having communion to help you think about God more and singing some songs to say to God, God, we love you and appreciate you. All those things are partially true, but primarily what Christian worship is in Revelation 3, especially in Revelation 4 through 5, is God coming and living with his people, of God piercing through the barrier that divides our world from his world, God making his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, of God creating the overlap in this space this morning. This is why we believe that when this is first, first we believe, because the Bible says it, First Peter 4, when God's word is read out loud in corporate worship, it is actually God himself present speaking. When you come to the rail, it's not just bread and wine to help you think about Jesus. It is Jesus himself giving himself to, to, to you to eat physically. I will sup with them and they will sup with me. God gives himself to us. So belief in Jesus. Second thing, repentance. Verse three, this, the rest of this will be fast and we'll be done in just a second. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. Verse 19, he says the same thing to the church at Laodicea. Uh, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Again, uh, rehashing old material for review's sake. Repentance is not giving up our private sins, although we probably should. 
Repentance is turning from one way of being human, our own way, and turning and trusting God for his way of being human. It's a whole life thing. It's a holistic thing. It's not just about the individual things we do from day to day. It's about every moment of every day saying, God, I want to be human your way, the way that you designed me. It's about, it's about vocation. God has called you to be who you are at work in a specific way, who you are at school in a specific way, who, who you are as a daughter or a son or a wife or a husband or a mother or a father or a grandmother or a grandfather or a friend or a coworker. God has a specific design that he wants you to do those things in specific ways. Repentance is about saying, God, I wanna do those things your way. Repentance is about making Jesus the central lens through which you see all of life and not all the other competing lenses. Uh, let me give you a real quick example, then we'll move on. Uh, of, of, of the way that we, that there's so many other lenses that, the, that our culture is saying, this is the most important thing. This is the way you should see yourself. I, I was watching, I, I don't know why I was wasting my time doing this, but uh, Unsolved Mysteries, not the better Robert Stack version from the 1980s, which uh, creeped my mom out to no end. You know, like She would watch Unsolved Mysteries, and I was not allowed to leave the house for like a week. But like, uh, Netflix has put out a new Unsolved Mysteries, uh, if you've seen it. And in the third episode, I just watched the third episode recently, and in the third episode, there's a, it's a very, very sad story about two parents um, two, two separate stories, who had their spouses kidnap their kids and, and leave the country. And in the f first story, extremely sad, very disheartening, uh, a, a woman um, marries uh, uh, this guy from Egypt who, uh, when their kids become like junior high age, kidnaps them, and now for five years they've been gone, and she has no clue where they are. But, but it starts off like this. She, she says, she's talk, telling the story about how she met her husband, and she says, um, he's from Egypt, he was, he's a Muslim, and uh, I'm Christian. But the thing that really bonded us, she said, is that is we both shared a really common middle-class upbringing. And I, I, this was the first, I didn't even know what the story was gonna happen, and I almost wanted to reach in there and like my, with my pastor voice say, no, don't do that. Whatever it is you're thinking of doing, it's wrong because the, th the filter that you're using to justify what you're about to do is, I'm middle-class, and that's how I see myself. And this other person's middle class, so this is gonna work. And you see what she did. She said, I'm a Christian, he's a Muslim. And what she did was she set aside her Christianity lens and said, Christian, I'm a Christian, I, that's there. You know, I guess it's kind of important, but I can, I can set that aside and bond with this person. And, and I wanna say, no, you cannot. Christianity is the whole shebang. Your socioeconomic status is meaningless. It's pointless. It has nothing to do with who you are. It is almost... This is hard for, for those who, the economic conservatives to hear who believe that you are what you are through hard work and diligence. Your socioeconomic status is, only, is almost random. The fact that you are middle class at this point is almost random. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with your context and your upbringing. What is important is that you are in Jesus Christ. And repentance is a way of constantly calling us back to say, I'm a Christian first. And my job, my hobbies... The things that those are all secondary and must be viewed through the lens of Christianity. That's repentance. Okay, third thing, this is the last thing, faithfulness. Verse 11, and he says this all to all the seven churches. Conquer. He says, uh, uh, verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. Hold fast, be, be faithful. All right, and this is, last thing, and then we'll get to the bonus point, which will be uh, very quick. Look, when you see the church as it is Revelation 2 through 3, your temptation is gonna to wanna to bail. 
Honestly, are, are you being honest with yourself? Have, have you not at times, even thinking about how, how great St. James is and uh, how handsome the pastor is, haven't you thought from time to time, I don't know, why am I doing this? What's the point? Why am I getting up on Sunday mornings and doing this? Why am I going to community group? Be faithful. Think about, revel- think about the other side of the coin. Think about who you are in Jesus Christ. Both the, I'm not saying that one reality is true and one isn't. There's this famous quote, and I've heard it attributed to St. Augustine. I've heard it attributed to Martin Luther. I spent about 10 minutes on my Google machine trying to track it down, specifically who it was, and I can't find it. So I'm just going to shoot it at you, and if you can find it, let me know. But, but the quote goes like this. The church is a whore. She's constantly unfaithful, constantly dirty, constantly weak, constantly low life. The church is a whore, but she's Christ's bride, and she's your mother, and as such, you are not free to abandon her. And I'm not talking about St. James. You're free to go to a different church if God's called you there. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ, as weak and as lousy as she is, as we are. I just made it third person so I didn't have to feel the weight of it. As weak and as lousy as we are, we are Christ's bride. He died for us. That's something. I don't get to look at you guys and think, oh, they're kind of important. Jesus died for you guys. You're the most important thing in the entire universe. All right, that's the end of the sermon proper. Now, bonus point. I promise this will be fast, and if it's not fast, it'll be interesting. Let, let, me, let me cast a little vision here. I, I, have, I have zero plans for the immediate future for this, all right? This is totally years down the road. All these churches, the seven churches that, 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 uh, that uh, Jesus is uh, speaking to here, the church at Jerusalem, the church at Rome, whether it's, whether it's Sardis, a really bad church, or Philadelphia, a great church. Do you wanna know something about them? None of them exist today. They're all gone. They all died. Why? Because of failure? Uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's failure. I think that's just the normal life cycle of churches. Now, I, I, Bob Whipke can talk more intelligently about this than me. But he's, he's t- talked with the elders before about the trajectory of the life cycle of a church. And there's definitely young energy that happens. And then there's going to be a plateauing. And then there's going to be a decline. And you know why churches are like that? Because you're like that. I mean, literally, you're like that. You're born. And you're in high school. And you're like running around. And you're staying up till one in the morning. And you're like studying until four in the morning. And then you sleep on the sofa for a half hour and then you get up and you go ace an exam. And then you hit, get to middle age and you're like at the, the, the prime nexus of like your strength and your wisdom. You know, starting with middle age, your strength goes down, your wisdom goes up. You know, when you're young, your strength is real high and your wisdom's real low. Middle age is the sweet spot. And then you get older and you start to plateau and then eventually, uh, spoiler alert, you all are going to die. Is that failure? It's because of sin, it's because we live in a fallen world, but it's just the way human life works. Churches are made up, churches are not perfect, they're made up of the same sort of material. Now, what, what should we do? Let's say you take somebody who's 95 years old, and they have Alzheimer's, and they're clearly, maybe a terminal disease, and they're clearly about to die. What, do you think that the answer for that person is to sink as much money as possible into keeping them alive as long as possible? Or what do we wanna do if we wanna keep on going as humans? 
we make babies, right? You are going to die. And so for us as humans, for St. James to continue to exist, we're gonna have to keep on making babies. I mean, really, like literal babies. And then those babies are gonna make babies. And 200 years from now, in a sense, you will still be surviving in your kids and your great-grandkids and so forth. Churches are the same way. Churches rise and die. And here's what happens, is in a synod like the LCMS, what we do is we say, here's this formerly really big church, and they've kind of atrophied and grown weaker. And what we should do is we should devote tons of resources into trying to bolster that church. But that's like trying to dump, dump tons of money and tons, tons of medical care in a 95-year-old Alzheimer's patient who has terminal cancer. It's just not gonna work. Instead, what should churches do? They should make babies. And I, I, I'm not gonna get into this now. So at some point between now and the next five years, I'm gonna give you sermons on this. It is proven in the American church that the only way for groups to survive is to plant churches. The LCMS is just now discovering this. There's this big push on just now to start planting biblical churches. And it just happened, I just started getting information about it recently. But here's why this is important. It's because St. James is going to die someday. St. James is gonna die. And that's just the way all churches work. The only way for us to keep on going is if we start planting churches. Us and all the other churches around here. And if we start saying, we're not gonna plant churches, we're just gonna invest in the old established churches, it won't work. Those churches will get old and atrophy and die. So I want you to pray, it's a little, just a, at the end of the sermon here, a little tiny bit of vision casting. Can you pray with me about God's desire to plant churches throughout the whole world and what we can do to be a part of that? At some point in the future, we're not anywhere close to being ready to be doing something like that right now. This is completely blue sky thinking. This is way out in the future. But can you start praying with me about this? God's desire for churches to rise up and to plant other churches, to multiply. All right, I'm gonna pray now and then we'll have... Uh, We'll have the offering and then communion. Father, bless us. Help us to be uh, people who uh, understand the Revelation 4 through 5 side of reality as we grapple with who we are now in the Revelation 2 through 3 side of us. Father, help us to repent. Help us to believe in you. Raise up new churches through our church here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, thank you for being such a good God and for loving us, and I pray that you would continue opening our eyes to the reality that is your reality, to who you've called us to be, uh, glorious and beautiful in your sight, perfect, completely holy, and help us, Father, as we grapple with our own brokenness and sinfulness and the weakness of, our, um, the weakness of us as individuals and, and, and as a church, help us to constantly being fueled by your promise to love us, uh, your promise that you do love us and that you have decided to come in and, and eat with us and us with you. And especially now, Lord, as we come to the rail, would you pull back the curtain and show us through the eyes of faith that you are present, that you are here, that you in all your glory stand amongst us in the common elements of the bread and wine. Help us to have true faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with all those who are struggling this morning with physical issues and um, mental health issues and uh, fractured relationships, uh, people who are uh, troubled by their own uh, besetting sins, people who are struggling with money, people who are lonely. Father, would you come and meet us where we're at and heal us in, in all of our sicknesses, uh, body, mind, and soul? And Lord, would you also... Um, be with all the people. There's just a ton of us right now that are under the weather, whether it's a COVID or a flu-like symptoms. It just seemed a ton of people missing because of that. Lord, would you bring healing and health to the members of our congregation and all of our friends and family, too, who are sick and struggling with uh, sickness? Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray for and thank you this morning for the uh, mission of your church here at St. James. And and I'm grateful this morning for our elders and for uh, the people that you've called to, to be servant leaders here. Uh, give our elders, including me, uh, give us hearts that don't long for control or power or decision-making ability, but hearts that long to serve and to, 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 to bear the weight of the congregation and to, to bear lovingly, bear the burdens and the, the hurts and, and also the joys of 
the rest of us and use your word ministered to us through your elders to sanctify and draw us close, closer to you. Um, I also pray that you would be with our missionaries and this morning we pray especially for Sue Hasselbring and uh, her mission with the International Student Ministries and as she ministers to students from overseas who uh, come here to study in the States and are far away from home and family and uh, struggle sometimes adjusting to a new culture and I just pray that you would bless her with the power of your gospel and your Holy Spirit and be with her as she ministers Jesus to all these people. Lord, in your mercy. We can only come in and pray these prayers, Father, because you're, you are the good God who loves us and has called us your children. And we confess that it's only by the shed blood of your son, Jesus, that we're able to approach your throne and to bring our request to you. And so we always only pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, for what had been hidden from before the foundation of the world you've made known to the nations in your Son. In him, being found in the substance of our mortal nature, you've manifested the fullness of your glory. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. Now let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen.
Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Don't forget on your way out, support Jack and Happy in their missions trip for the summer. Make sure you're connecting, forming a relationship. Go in peace.